You're listening to the MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. Designers are facilitating and owning the process, but we still bring in a lot of different people to join in the user research, for example. So different tech people, salespeople, support, uh, management and so forth, so that everybody is part of understanding the user. Hello, I'm Mark Pawlowski, founder of MEX. And that was Anna Beck, the CEO of Kivra, talking there about how you establish the foundations of design culture in a startup as it scales. And it's this really careful balance between investing and investing early in bringing on people who've got those very specific user research and experience design skills, bringing on enough of them to make a team, but then also giving them the mandate to involve all of the different company functions which are actually going to be needed to make a meaningful difference to company culture in those user-centered design-led exercises. Now, in Anna's case, I suspect it's something which flows very directly from her background as someone who's spent time working in design agencies, uh, design agencies both large and small, uh, and getting to see firsthand the challenges of ensuring that user-centered design work has an impact, um, as well as also holding client-side roles in the world of of tech and, and telecoms. You've seen both sides of that equation. So Anna started out with a master's in industrial engineering, and she later earned an MBA at the Stockholm School of Economics. Uh, and along the way, she worked for GlocalNet, a pioneering telecoms operator back in the sort of early 2000s. And she works as a consultant in China, uh, and then as managing director of Ocean Observations, that the Swedish design agency. Uh, and you might recall, if you're a regular listener, that I spoke with the founder there uh, at Ocean, Sophia Svendersen, in a previous episode of this podcast. Uh, then for Anna, it was on to the design agency Veriday, uh, where she was the COO, the chief operating officer. And that was during a period when it was acquired by uh, and then integrated into McKinsey Design, part of this ongoing trend for the world's really big management consulting firms to buy specialist user-centered design agencies. Now, most recently, Anna has become CEO of Kivra, which is this digital platform for securing users' records. And it began by providing digital delivery of sort of key documents, things like tax and bank statements in a secure environment. And now they're expanding into other bits of sensitive digital information, things like receipts. And it's a role which, as hopefully you'll learn from from this conversation, it's full of intriguing experience design challenges. And I very much enjoyed the discussion with Anna. It touches on some of those perennial themes, which I think capture the interest of, of many people listening to this, many people in the MEX community, things like trust in the digital environments and techniques of, of quiet design. Uh, and I'll try and put some links into the show notes um, to some of the other thinking that we've looked at over years on, on those topics in case that's something you're interested in following up on. And although I'd met Anna a couple of years ago, uh, we actually did a little bit of, of work together on a project for a big global bank. This was also a really lovely opportunity to sit down and just get to learn a bit more about uh, her journey. So I'll be back at the end. Um, and don't forget that if you want to check out the links in those show notes, uh, which go alongside this episode, they're at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section.
But for now, here's my chat with Anna Beck. Hope you enjoy. One of the things I was curious about on this theme of design, since I guess that was kind of the context in which you and I first met, was whether when you think back, you can trace a particular moment or a time where you started to feel an affinity towards design as something that you were interested in. I think that my sort of long-term interest have been in people and understanding people and what people need and want, uh, and on a very global scale. So I did I went to China and did Mandarin when I was 17 and I traveled the globe when I was 19. Uh, I went to South America, to Ecuador and studied Spanish when I was 22. And it's all the time like really deep diving in a culture and, and understanding people. And I think I came from that side and then I moved into tech and a lot around innovation. And then even later, I sort of more really started to, to see like to push the boundaries and, and really innovate new services and products that are relevant to people. Design is the, is the glue. Uh, and, and I think that is how I came into to design. Where do you even start with something like that uh, experience in China? Um, I mean, I, personally, I've always been terrible at languages. I, I love to travel, but I've always struggled with learning other languages. I think possibly like a lot of people who grow up in the UK, because you have the um, dubious advantage that it is such a globally spoken language. There's maybe less of a, an impetus for it. But, uh, you know, when you had you been learning that the language before you arrived in, in China, or was that something that you had to start to pick up, you know, once you arrived on the ground? No, I actually started before. Uh, so uh, my Asian interest comes from, I'm born in Malaysia in, in the early 70s. And uh, I revisited Malaysia when I was 15. And all my uh, parents' friends were Chinese. And I just got totally fascinated about the culture. And when I came back home, I chose the secondary school uh, that uh, offered Chinese. And it was a fantastic teacher. She's like in Sweden, one of the uh, most well-known uh, personalities knowing about China and been studying in China since the 50s. She's uh, Cecilia Lindqvist, wrote several books also about the, the character language. So she was very deep into like how the the written language have developed through sort of culture and what it actually expresses each character. Uh, after two years, uh, we did, the whole class went to, to China to study uh, during a sort of extended summer vacation. So I knew quite a bit before, but uh, from a sort of very cultural rooted Mandarin teacher, I would say. But then we studied at the, the, the University for Foreign Languages. And I've been revisited China and actually lived six years in China in more recent times as well. So sort of I tend to go back uh, again and again. But it's developed enormously from from my first experience in 1990 up until uh, now in the recent years. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's funny how those threads which start and more often than not, it it often does take having someone like an extraordinary teacher to really illuminate a, a subject or a theme for you. And then that thread comes back th- throughout life. But, you know, I find that, that quite interesting, the, the idea of, you know, going and, and immersing yourself in, in another culture, and especially at a time like that in China, where there must be a huge amount of change going on in the, the 1990s and, and going forward from that. Uh, because, you know, in many ways, that's kind of the foundation of any user-centered approach when you're going to apply that 
to a business is, is that ability to go somewhere which is very different and to, to make that progression from I've learnt about it at a distance to I'm now actually going to immerse myself in the reality for what this means for people on the ground. I mean, have you taken those lessons forward into what you've done since then in work, you know, being able to make that leap from I understand this from a textbook to I can actually see the reality of the nuance of this and, and use that to advantage? Uh, yeah, definitely. And I, I think that was uh, yeah, so where you and I met when I was at Very Day, where the, the people-driven innovation is like the, the deep foundation of what where it, they uh, do in, in, in all kinds of work. And I think that is like this really immerse yourself into uh, the user's situation and also coming without and sort of any hypothesis to prove, rather being extremely open-minded and just listen and, and, and deep dive and, and not try to prove your own point. Uh, I think... Um, that's a great experience to bring in into work and, and 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 not put your own mindset upon it. And I think that's been interesting by being so much in China is also that and I, I worked for several years and have had employees there as well, that their fundamental mindsets are extremely different from what you read in media and, and how you are brought up and, and so forth. And they have another sort of world history, many people there. And and uh, it's important not to say that our history writing is, is the correct one. So I think it's, uh, and that takes you into how you adopt to new things and, and, and a lot of different areas in business as well. Absolutely. You know, having that, that closeness to something and being able to, I guess, empathize at a, a fundamental level. I mean, what were some of the differences that were most apparent to you when you were in China, you know, having grown up in, in other parts of the world, and I presume a, a different type of education system. When you first arrived and then started working in China, what were some of the things that struck you about the differences in that sort of worldview? I think one big difference. So my I worked in China in 2006 and forward on and off up until 2016. And I think both the sort of level of ambition and like being sense of urgency that you really, and also that you uh, are responsible for making your own life successful uh, and the energy people put into it, I think is, is quite different to Europe, at least, where people are a bit, I wouldn't say everybody fast and happy, but it's another sense of urgency of, of making change, uh, which is sometimes good because it becomes more long term and sometimes it makes things slower. I also think that like worldview around nations and keeping nations together or letting them split uh, where are, are quite uh, different where China is, is, uh, has been very strong in keeping it together, while Europe has, has be become more and more fragmented, for example. And you know, for you yourself, do you find that sense of urgency compelling? Is that something that you enjoy in a business environment, to have that, that sense of we've got to make it happen and make it happen fast? Yeah, I, I, I personally love it when it's the sense of urgency and, and like that you really want to make things fast. Uh, then I actually like working with people that also are different than me because I know that the time to reflect and to iterate and prototype and mm -hmm. test again and so forth, make it better. So uh, I'm always the one that wants to make it faster, but I, I learned through the years to really listen in to, to colleagues being experts in processes and, and so on to, to, to also let some things take time in order to, to 
agree to do the right thing. Yeah, it's a tricky balance to strike that, I think, you know, particularly in anything where you're taking what could be described as a user-centered design approach. There's always that tension between those two different speeds. Clearly, the desire, the goal is to get as much depth, I suppose, about uh, how people behave and how people interact. But often to get that, you need to work very fast in iterations to constantly refine and test things and put new things in front of people and see their reaction. Uh, it, it's a really strange balance. Um, yeah, maybe it helps to have that uh, that awareness of the two speeds. Yeah, I, I do think so. One thing which struck me, you know, having a, a little bit of research into your background is uh, how it seemed like the original interest you had, at least professionally, was perhaps more technology-led than design-led. And yet, by the time you and I met a couple of years ago, you were obviously deeply involved with Veriday, which is a real pioneer and um, uh, you know well-known exponent of user-centered design. Was that a, a, like a planned transition? No, I, I think uh, it's it more developed over time, sort of quite passion-driven and not so planned, to be honest. And uh, I thought I did a Master of Science uh, in Industrial Engineering as, as my main degree and uh, did it because I thought that would open up most doors. I haven't closed any doors for the future. Uh, I thought I would work for Ericsson in China, but I met uh, with one of my former managers where I had had some internships at Ericsson. And he said, the operators are the future, the telecom operators are the future. This was late 1990s where the telecom market was deregulating. And uh, he connected me with uh, a guy, Stefan Krug, who was, uh, had uh, just started a telecom operator and I joined a small company with 15 employees and no no customers at that time doing IP telephony with a with a strong uh, belief that telephony should be for free uh, everybody should be able to connect with each other for free globally and there I did a bit of of everything in the beginning marketing product management but uh, somehow was drawn into tech because I felt that's where it happened like we had to build the tech the new technology we were the, uh, the technical pioneers and and, and uh, um, put a lot of of um, belief in 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 uh, what new technology would enable for users uh, and I think this was about the same time as Skype but Skype they did feed with the free telephony uh, globally and we uh, in the end sort of turned into more of a traditional telco still startup and still a challenger in the in the Swedish market but uh, not as globally as we from from the beginning thought but then we we offered uh, plain old telephony, we did uh, dial-up internet as it was at that time, and then later on ADSL, broadband, uh, mobile telephony. Uh, and, I, and I was CIO, CTO for, for five, six years, and then moved over to uh, COO, uh, which also then included customer service, which was an, an enormous challenge at that time. A lot of technology not, and processes not working really well, and uh, the users being sort of squeezed in between yeah, our, our development and new services. And how I then ended up in design. I think I moved to like 2005. Uh, I, I've been there for eight years. We were expecting our first kids. And my husband got uh, an offer to head business Sweden in Greater China. So we moved to Beijing. And I started my own consultancy and did a lot of different things as, as a general manager for someone consultancy and so on. And then when I moved back, I thought I should continue with telecom. And I thought it had become so boring. It, they didn't develop any new services. It's more sort of dealing customers from each other. It's lots of focus on, on locking people in with long contracts, um, churn reduction and so on. And then 
I heard about design and, and I started that ocean observation and design agency and really sort of because that's where you push the boundaries, where you develop the new services in any industry and, and like really try to, to take the next step. Yeah, I mean, that's a, an interesting connection. Um, I mean, some of our listeners uh, may remember we had a previous episode where I spoke with uh, Sophia Svantesson, who's the uh, the founder of Ocean Observations, who you must have worked closely with in, in your time there. What was your, your feeling when you joined a company like Ocean, having spent that time, as you say, working with fairly traditional service providers and telecom operators, and then to go and work with someone like Ocean, which I guess was really in the vanguard of trying to get that quite tech-centered industry among telecom operators, handset manufacturers, to start thinking in a user-centered, human-centered way. How did that feel as someone coming into that environment and, and trying to drive the business? Oh, I, I thought it was fantastic. It, it was like you, you, your like main mission all the time was to, to push boundaries. And it was also a lot around mobile first. This was 2010. So everybody came from like trying to squeeze web pages down to a mobile format. And, and we came much more mobile first. And this is where, you, where, where the future is and, and, and looking into how user behavior is changing. I know the the first tablets came that year as well. And like, how will people use tablets uh, in the future? Is that more of a sort of collaborative format where more people look at the same screen or is it still a personal device and so on? Uh, so it was a lot around sort of understanding and help clients to understand where is the future heading and how will people change their user behaviors with new technology uh, facilitating it. Yeah, that's really interesting about the tablets as multi-person devices. That was something which you actually had quite a, a theme and exploration of within the MEX community, probably around that same time. It's quite possible that some of the people from Ocean were involved in those sessions at our, our MEX conferences in the past. And I guess as with so many things in technology it feels to me like something where perhaps the short-term implications of that were very much overhyped but actually the longer-term implications will end up going on to be more significant than we could have guessed and there was a big fanfare around tablets and the ipad obviously when it was first introduced and lots of new behaviors coming in of multiple people gathered around the same device and then the market as a whole seemed to stall and just now i guess in the last year 18 months i don't know how how you feel about this but to me it feels as if we're starting to see a bit more of an upswell around tablets and that sort of large-scale touch-driven computing becoming a bit more of a mainstream thing with some of the things that apple are doing to make the the ipad their kind of mainstream computing device yeah yeah exactly. can you remember at the time you know any of those sort of behaviors and nuances that that Ocean were looking at in relation to how people were starting to behave a bit differently with tablets or, or what the clients were interested in exploring? It was a lot around this, like more having it, let's say, as a flat device on the table where you gather around and maybe having more sort of multi-touch on it so that you could maybe play something together, several people. And then I think... Uh, a little bit later than that, I also started to look into it more from on, on business perspectives. Um, that was a few years later, more on, on like uh, how could it be used in healthcare and other business areas as well. It's a pretty classic transition curve, I guess, where the interesting experiments start happening basically for fun and hobbyists playing around with stuff like, you know, multiplayer gaming. And then all of a sudden businesses start to 
hear about these things and think, oh, hang on, this is something we could actually apply and make profitable or gain an efficiency from. I feel like that happens with quite a few technologies. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really keen to learn more about how all of this experience that you, you had from the world of telecoms uh, and then latterly with design companies ended up taking you through to something like Kivra, where our CEO, um, I was intrigued when I, I saw your announcement that you were joining as CEO of, of Kivra. When did you first come across the company? You know, what caught your attention about what Kivra is, is doing? Actually, I came across it already in 2013 because it's, it's the, the founder of Glocalnet to Telco I was at is uh, one of the co-founders of Kivra. So, uh, so I know him uh, quite well. So I, I sort of followed his journey. I did an interview. For me, he's one of the most interesting entrepreneurs in Sweden because he has very sort of strong social connections and really want to do, to do good for real. Uh, in in what he, he he's doing, so he's done a, a foundation called Good Cause, where he has uh, good air, which is good utility, uh, good uh, and a number of other companies, and all uh, the revenue from those companies is given to charity. So he founded that after Glocalnet, and then he founded uh, co-founded Kivra, and uh, with a with a strong vision of taking away window envelopes. It's it's stupid to use all these trees to send papers to people's homes and also all the transportation where it's actually better for people to get it digitally uh, and, and you can also sort of save environment. So I did an interview with him back in 2013 when I did an executive MBA and as a person that I think is really interesting and inspiring and then we just sort of kept in, in touch and last autumn like September 2018, he, he pinged me and said, oh, I, I actually want to hand over this CEO position. Would you be interested? And, and then we had a couple of months of, of uh, discussions because I really enjoyed my time at Very Day and McGinsey Design as well and felt like I was on a journey there, and which I hadn't finished. But then in the end, I couldn't resist um, taking, taking on Kira because I think it's both very strong and interesting owners, but then also the, 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 the actual like the problem we're trying to solve for, for society, building a digital platform or a digital infrastructure for Sweden where you should be able to get all your communication uh, digitally. And, and we come quite a long way with having more than 3 million users today and 15,000 companies and government agencies. You get your tax declaration, you get your doctor's appointment, you get your cancer checkup results, you get your uh, bills uh, your, and, and uh, important information from insurance companies and so on. So I think it's really uh, has a very, very interesting potential. And what's, what would you say is the, the fundamental advantage of having that channeled through something like Kivra? Um, I guess there are companies out there that are trying to do this alone, you know, where you could have a, a direct relationship with your bank or your insurance company where they deliver the documents to you digitally. But it yeah. strikes me that one of the, the, the major differences of Kivra is that you have that um, amalgamation of, of those things, that it, it can all be be centralized. And, and I'm curious as to, you know, when you, you talk to the users, and I know user-centered design and involving the customers is a big part of what you're trying to do there. What do you what do you hear from them about how they see that advantage? They really appreciate that they have everything at the same at the, in the same letterbox, so to say. <laughs> so it's not spread over twenty or fifty 
different email addresses or uh, my pages uh, solutions or like different areas they get everything in one place and also that they can they can pay uh, the invoices they get they pay with like just pushing a button so it's easy to to, to uh, have that and also that they, they know where they have all the information they can also share this like their mailbox with somebody trusted like i can share with my spouse for example and then he can see the insurance documents for the house for example or other things that we share so i think there is yeah it's mostly sort of this convenience aspect uh, that the users see and uh, over the the time that the service has been operating what's been the major challenge around how you ensure it stays relevant to all of the users because you, you mentioned before you know the user numbers now are becoming quite substantial this is no longer you know a startup if you like this is becoming very much a mass market service um you've you've obviously come in at a slightly later stage you know you joined um within the last year or so but have you been able to track you know what some of those challenges are as you go from being uh, a startup with early adopters to becoming something which is truly mass scale i would say that the first like really big challenges from the beginning when you have a company with with no or a service with with no users no senders no content how do you convince the first to join <laughs> because uh, because there is nothing there so I'm, I'm extremely impressed on how they overcome that challenge like the first couple of years before it it's actually like a, a large number of of um, both senders and users there and now it's it's quite easy to to prove the relevance for for um both users and senders, uh, and and then I think to to um, take it to a mass market product, then it's it's to go beyond the so like the main user groups are now young people, so between uh, eighteen and thirty, or uh, we have a very large part of the population. They are more digital natives. Uh, if you look into um, like let's say my my dad's generation being seventy plus, it's it's for them it's to change the behavior. It's you you used to get your physical post and you put it in a in a binder and that's where you have it. So I think that's definitely a challenge. And um, but at the same time we are solving a or we we're catering a need where people become more and more global and travel and work from anywhere. And also a lot of the retired people travel a lot and spend several months abroad, maybe in Southern Europe and so on. And here, sadly, you can have everything wherever you are <laughs> and you can always access it. So uh, I, I think it's very much in line with like how society is developing. But of course, it takes time to, to, to sort of get the, the more um, not so change minded people. So uh, how long have you you've been in the CEO role there now? Uh, a four and a half months. And how did you start to set the priorities about, you know, which of those user groups or you know which parts of the, the user-centered design process that you wanted to start to accelerate? Because I'm guessing you know part of the reason why one of the co-founders would have wanted to bring someone with your background and skill set in, you, know, you have spent time with some very well-known design-led organizations like Ocean and Veriday and McKinsey Design. How do you start to to translate you know some of all that background and experience into 
a new set of priorities, which means that Kivra becomes more, more user-centered and designed over time. For me, it's both been a sort of really deep dive and understand all people here. I, I love working with experts and connecting experts to each other and, and find ways of working which make these aha moments and like where you come up with great things and really sort of make innovation flourish. So I, I actually have had interviews with all employees. It's, it's 17 employees, so it's not and and, and uh, an enormous amount so it's it's uh, definitely feasible and understanding what, where people come from what they want and what they want to keep and what they want to change and then i um saw a, a great potential for bringing the users into the room working more like i've been working before but also working even more sort of cross-functional together innovate and so we have had a number of um, sort of inspirational breakfast talks and lunch seminars. Did a few body groups to deep dive in in, in users and and how they discuss their daily administration and what their needs are. Uh, And then held a workshop uh, with the whole company uh, and 10 users participating, which was like, it was a great success. People really got uh, inspired uh, by uh, understanding user needs, use desires, pain points, and together with cross-functional teams, come up with solutions together with the users as well and, and try them out on users. Um, so I think my main priority is, is really to sort of find ways of working together, the full company, uh, to become even more relevant and also be able to launch uh, new services. So one big service that was already decided when I came in was to digitize receipts. Uh, in, in, um, and we have a, a contract with the largest uh, grocery retailer in Sweden, Ica, and we digitize their receipts. So put a lot of effort in making that product extremely successful because that's a very competitive market. So we need to be right on and very relevant to the users from, from day one. And that will be launched during the autumn. So also sort of put a... Uh, design, um, prototyping, testing out in the um, retail environment, testing and so on, uh, process on that project. Uh, That's that's very interesting, the idea of getting the whole company involved in something where there are directly uh, interacting with the, the end users. I mean, you've had experience of this, I guess, with a whole bunch of different industries working as a consultant previously and in some ways you know having had those experiences myself that's almost the dream scenario you know if you're able to get enough buy-in from the management team that they can actually bring all sorts of different cross-functional teams to a large-scale workshop where people get that that exposure it's it's a great way to to embed the importance of a user-centered approach but one thing i'm curious about is is how do you how do you make that balance between exercises like that, which by definition can only take place on certain occasions or with a certain amount of time dedicated to them, versus then what is being done by the people who are specifically tasked as the experienced designers within the company? You know, have you started to form a view on where that sort of deep attention is best directed for the people who are specifically experienced designers versus doing things which do more to kind of spread the, the breadth and the width of, of the design culture within the company? I think I started to to have a view on it. It's still a bit too early and we are still sort of recruiting uh, quite a lot within both design and tech. Uh, so, But I think uh, that this sort of uh, big everybody involved thing uh, should happen at least once a year 
maybe every six months. Uh, and it, we took it as a late afternoon, evening thing. It's also because we wanted uh, our support to be able to, to join. And uh, so then it doesn't take that much time, but it gives a lot of energy and inspiration and gets sort of everybody being a part and you sort of connect everybody's ideas uh, at the same time. And then I think in the sort of more continuous uh, development of new services and, and features and so on, uh, that should be the more the people who are actually employed to do it. Uh, but there I'm also very keen that designers are facilitating and owning the process, but we still bring in a lot of different people to join in the user research, for example. So different tech people, salespeople, support, uh, management and so forth, so that everybody is part of understanding the user. How do you make best use in particular of people who are in customer support functions to, to feed that cycle of user-driven innovation? Because uh, I guess now with the number of users that you have, your, your customer service function, I'm guessing, must be a pretty significant number of staff and you know quite a large part of what the, the company is doing to support all those users. Have you been able to find ways to, to connect you know, things that are being discovered by the people on the front line of that customer support uh, back to then the, the innovation process of how that's going to influence what, what happens with the existing services and, and new services that you might roll out? Yeah, uh, actually, to, we've worked very, and that came from the long history of working very close with support so uh, support uh, has their own slack channels together with the developers and where sort of constantly ask about issues and and feed into the backlog and also get sort of quick help uh, so very sort of collaborative and close atmosphere uh, with the support people it's also uh, actually a, a surprisingly few people working in support so so from the beginning it's been a strong motivation to make uh, service that give an exclamation mark not a question mark so it should be so easy to use and uh, always functioning so it should be no need for support then of course there still is a few issues but uh, compared to how many users we have we have a very very limited support staff and, and very few issues actually um, but it, it's a, a, a very, very close collaboration between uh, tech and uh, support. So as you start to think about these new services around receipts that are going to roll out and also as the business starts to scale internationally, what are your hopes for the, the design team, the wider design culture, if you like, within Kifra? Have you started to think about how that might be affected by, I believe you're now starting to look at new international markets, for instance, as well as the, the new services themselves that are rolling out, how that goes from being something which has had the kind of the feel of a startup to something which is more global. Yeah, I think it will put a, a, a lot of uh, fun challenges on, on the organization, uh, both that, like, for example, receipts, it's more 24-7 than, uh, than uh, letters. <laughs> to, uh, so I think we'll, we have a few challenges uh, moving ahead, but then also, of course, the service uh, will become uh, more and more complex uh, or, or the platform become more and more co complex when we add new services and also add new geographies. So there is uh, quite some thinking both in sort of technical architecture and also uh, how we um, implement services for new cultures. So we have a small, so we are opening in Finland in, during this autumn. So we have a team of 
wonderful people there uh, and they have their own design and tech team. Uh, but building on our platform and it's a lot of close collaboration to understand how, how different user behaviors are there or needs for other services or features or ways of work. Could I ask you a, a bit about the time at, at Veriday and then when that became part of, of McKinsey Design and how those experiences have informed what you're now doing at Kivra? Because uh, I guess one of the, the things which always strikes me about design agencies of any kind is the variety. You know, I presume you must have had the opportunity to work in all sorts of different industries and advise all sorts of different sizes of company during that time there. Uh, And I'm wondering if there are any sort of standout cases from that time that you've found you've been able to parlay into what you're doing at at Kifra. I think there's quite a few cases, but maybe more in terms of sort of change management and how you work with... uh, creating new categories of services which users still has not seen <laughs> sort of you, you see you, a need from users but uh, there isn't a solution or not quite the same solution as you have at least existing and then you create it and, and how you sort of create that uptake and, and user behavior and, and then after a while it's part of people's life and they take it for granted so, so maybe more uh, that side of things than, than specific services per se but then I've done a lot of different things, a lot of fintech, telco, uh, music services, uh, and so on, uh, on a global scale. And, and of course, there are probably bits and pieces here and there that, that could be interesting from an actual service as well. Yeah, perhaps that's the major advantage of being in an environment where there is a lot of different project flow, is that you're able to start to sort of see in aggregate what are the things that are repeatable, common, generic processes that are applicable to all industries versus those which are things that are specific to the nuance of that particular sector and then understanding you know how those kind of core processes can be something that you can refine improve embed within any company versus those which you have to really be deep within the knowledge of that particular sector to, to perfect you know maybe that's that's the advantage you get from having that um, very broad sort of high level view of the different worlds that you work in yeah I think I also learned a lot around being long-term. It can take you where you want. And, and uh, Kiva is very long-term in the way you're working and also very sort of strong on the sort of sustainability and doing good and, and keep to your main beliefs. Have happy, happy as one of our sort of core values. And that's that it always should be good both on the sender side and the user side. Um, and, and high in- integrity thinking that we don't look at people's letters. We... we send them through but uh, the data is not ours and i think in the t- in the world now when so much is around data security and and what different applications actually do with your data and <laughs> i think it's uh, a very important part and here i can sort of feel at home at, from from the very day side too where we it was a very strong sort of core values in the company that doing projects that we're doing good is is, um, is important uh, for the people working there and, and and it's worth being long-term and say no for things that you don't believe in and keep to your track. How do you find that translates into, I guess, the design approach that the users see and reassures them that that's the case? Um, because I guess it's, it's one thing to have that as a company mission and to hire on that basis and to instill that culture within people that work there. But getting users to understand that that is the case and to to trust, fundamentally, I suppose this is about trust, I guess must be a particular challenge in itself. 
I mean, I, at one level, perhaps it's a visual thing, you know, how you convey that it is a trusted environment within the digital services. But maybe it's it's also something which extends to to other ways you interact with customers so that they feel reassured that, that, that they can trust you. Yeah, I think it's a lot around the sort of login part uh, where we use the, the Swedish bank ID. Uh, which is a national service created by the banks, uh, which uh, makes it it's very trusted. Everything that's sort of behind the bank ID is trusted. But then, of course, it's the way we handle people in customer support. It's the uh, the way uh, the send what senders send to you that that we are very important with that the, it, it's good content and also how we handle them. But I do agree it, it it's a challenging topic uh, definitely for especially on the user side. Uh, but then I think when like the Swedish tax authorities sent uh, the income spec- uh, income declaration in in uh, in Kira. Then you sort of get it, that trust stamp quite strongly. Uh, and a few others like these really, especially I think a lot around government posts, but other also major insurance companies and banks. Then it it, it gets that trust stamp. But from a design point, it's very important. I, I agree. And I remember you and me had. Uh, a workshop together in a, uh, for an, a global bank, and and we discussed this like uh, with a more so quiet design, and when do you sort of uh, take time from your user and ping them and so on. And I think it's for us, it's very important that it's quite a clean service. It's not cluttered. You should get reminders of invoices and so on, but you should not get like spammed from us. Uh, so I, I think it's a lot of uh, both in sort of actual user interface, but also in in the to say service design around the service and also what content is inside that that makes this feel of trust. Yeah, it, it's a very fine balance to strike that, I suppose, between giving the user the sense that there is engagement there, that the service is alive and there to support them when they need it, without making them feel that the service itself is, is too needy or too desperate. It's I guess it's different for different cultures, but to my mind, I think perhaps one of the the problems with the trust of social networks as a whole, which has started to emerge in the last few years, is maybe that their whole business models are based around the need for engagement of some kind, and that often it is that need for their users to be engaged and to occupy their attention to fund that business model, which causes that breakdown in trust, because there's a fundamental incompatibility between, you know, we need you to be doing things that you might not, as a user, otherwise choose to do, so that we mm-hmm. can make money. Uh, and that that's a very difficult thing to resolve um, and, and to, to main trust for the long term. Long term. Yeah. Have you thought about how that might differ if you start to expand um, into many different locations globally? You know, I'm always struck in all kinds of industries. And when I have the opportunity to work in different parts of the world that I've personally grown up in places where on the whole you associate people in uniform or official institutions and services, generally speaking, with a sense of, of trust. Uh, and that they're there for the sort of the safety of the, the wider population, but that actually there are many places, perhaps still more places than not in the world, where the sight of officialdom of some kind is actually something which instills distrust. Uh, and you mentioned there about the, the using of um, you know, a centralized service backed by the different banks in Sweden as the kind of the trusted authority for how people log in. Is it too early, you know, given where the, the markets you're expanding into, to think about how that might change if you were going into places in the world where there's not that sense of, of trust in official institutions? Uh, yeah, I, I'm 
definitely been thinking about that a lot, uh, both in in like trust of official institutions and also the trust of having your data centralized, the trust of digital in general, and also how digital people are. So if you compare, so I would say in Sweden, it's it's nearly a cashless society by now. I never have cash. Most people don't. It's uh, you have. You think everything should be digital, more or less. Uh, While if you go to just uh, Central Europe, it's it's uh, you still can pay or you pay a taxi driver with cash, maybe, although it's no other alternative. (laughs) So, so uh, even in Berlin at at times. So I I feel uh, a lot of different challenges in different countries. I would say Uh, both in terms of trust of of, of government and, and institutions, but also in how digital people are or. Or want to be. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like that's going to provide some interesting challenges as that geographic expansion continues. Uh, what about the uh, the makeup of your wider team as well? I guess not just the the design team, but the sort of uh, the, the culture that you're looking to to build now as CEO. I mean, as you say, it's been a relatively short period so far that you've you've been there in the role. Uh, but have you started to form a view of what you want that that team to to feel like uh, as it as it starts to grow yeah definitely i think uh, it's it, it's important that people feel like very proud and and happy with the core service we're providing and i and when i talk to people that are here now they really choose kira because they think it's a sustainable sustainable business model that when we the more we grow uh, the better we do for the environment so it's a bit of i joke and say it's a lot of tree huggers here <laughs> digital tree huggers but uh, so i think that's a po- important part to keep it's we have a, a strong foundation in happy happy for senders, for users, for us, and, and also trying to innovate with that mindset. And uh, I love, um, Stefan often says, it, this happy, happy is if, like, if you have a pumpkin and you and I should share it, if we just share it without talking about it, we may, might split it in half. But if we actually would discuss what, what we would like to do out of that pumpkin, I might want to do a pumpkin soup and you might want to do a jack-o'-lantern. And then we instead, I take the content and you take the, sh- the shell. And, and to think about that kind of way of creating solutions for companies and users to, to communicate or to, to solve other sort of daily life problems. And I think that sort of should be the mindset for, for the whole culture internally as well, that you sort of help each other, but you also find ways of, of together making things even better. Yeah, I mean, that, that collaborative approach and being able to to embed users and all kinds of stakeholders more deeply in the overall mission of the company. It feels like something which is a bit of a, a goal shared by, I think, particularly the culture that I noticed at, at very day as a design organization, but you know, really as a, a goal for many people who are involved in this. I'm sure many of the listeners who are listening to this will be very much on that same page that, you know, that is the the dream scenario, if you like, when you get a bigger and bigger mandate to have that that collaborative approach to things. I mean, do, do you reflect on that um, for you personally? Because uh, it, it kind of occurs to me that for many people who have gone along this track that, that you have of being involved with a smaller design agency and then working for one of the larger design agencies and then that becoming part of a big professional services company and now to to be CEO of a company yourself and have a chance to establish that culture. You know, that that's that's a pretty um, dream progression track for, for a lot of people. Do, do you ever think about what might come next after that or whether there's something that you haven't yet had the chance to do that you're really hoping that you'll get the opportunity 
opportunity uh, to, to do in the future? Right now, I think I'm so much into to this dream scenario as you as you very well expressed it. So I uh, I think. Uh, this can take us a, lo- a long way and, and me a long way. So I haven't, I, I hope to be able to inspire others in, in, in being able to do the same and also to prove that a very collaborative, user centric way of working is very successful for your business as well. Yeah, that um, is something which I guess would be a good opportunity to, to ask you about at this stage, given that uh, you now are in the, the throes of building this this design culture in a startup, but you've also had the design agency experience. I know that a lot of the listeners to this podcast are at an earlier stage in their career. You know, it's people who are coming out of university, having just graduated with something related to, to user-centered design, or maybe you're in the first year or two of their uh, career as a design agency or an in-house team. Having had all the experience that you have of those different environments, do you have any thoughts on what are the the things that people at that stage in their careers should be focusing on? I I think to be really curious and and learn from different experts, like yeah, to 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 to, to try to put you in, the, in an environment where you have many different uh, skill sets and experts and and learn and and uh, collaborate that I think will take you really far. Yeah, it's that virtue of the the cross-functional, which I I suppose is something it sounds like you're working hard on at at Kifra as well, which I think for for any organization that has ambitions to really make a a virtue of its design culture, that the more that kind of cross-functional approach can be embraced, it feels like a a positive thing. But look, Anna, it's been a real pleasure to catch up with you and hear um, about this new challenge that you're taking on. I hope you will keep in touch with uh, Mex and keep us updated on on progress there. And I, I wish you all the very best for it. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was lovely to talk to you and thank you for inviting me. So what did you think of that? I mean, it struck me that Anna's is another of those journeys where the experiences that she had working agency side have really gone on to inform a powerful desire to establish good design culture in a startup right from the outset. If that's something which captures your imagination, um, then there are a few other episodes in our ever-growing Mex podcast archive, which are worth checking out on that theme. Uh, so Sophia Svantesson, uh, who worked uh, with Anna at Ocean Observations, would be one of those episodes. Uh, Craig Bryant uh, from We Are Mammoth. He was another person whose agency work led to actually the founding of two different software startups. Uh, there was Eric Kim at Modo Labs, um, also another person that's followed that path. Uh, what I'll do is I'll put some links in the show notes to those different episodes, which kind of pick up on that theme, design agency founders who have led design agencies in different ways who have gone on to then uh, play serious roles in driving startups and design culture at startups. Uh, And you can find those show notes as ever at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And in fact, I mean, that, that gets me thinking, maybe that's a path that you yourself have followed if you're listening to this uh, and you've got a, a story to tell about how you've made that journey from agency work of some kind. You're working with a bunch of different clients on, on experience design projects to then going on to launching your own product or, or your own company. Why don't you drop me a line? Uh, we can talk about getting you on the show as a guest 
Uh, if you'd like to do that, then the email address is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Um, perhaps just drop me a note to get in touch. Tell me a little bit about uh, how that path has been for you. And it would be great to do that for some future episodes. So that's it for now. Uh, but do please send this episode on to your friends and colleagues. It's the best way to spread the word about the next podcast and our ever-growing listenership out there in the, the world of design and UX. Uh, and I'll be back soon with another edition. But for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye.